opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with new abolitionists and activists Johanan Iraya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the March 29th broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. We're 13 weeks deep in the 2017 and the new Trump slash Truman Show. On this day in 1973, two months after the signing of the Vietnam Peace Agreement, the last U.S. combat troops left South Vietnam as Hanoi freed the remaining American prisoners of war held in North Vietnam. Yet in 2017, there is still no talk from the states or the feds on freeing anyone unjustly incarcerated. This is the age of information, and we've got more than we can ever disseminate, so let's just get into it, shall we? Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week is ex-Black Panther leader uh, who uh, plans community services after after releasing officers killing. Released after 44 years behind bars in the shooting death of a Baltimore police officer, former Black Panther leader Marshal Eddie Conway said in a radio interview Wednesday that he plans to dedicate the next stage of his life to community service, which he has done. Our abolitionist in profile is the entire pre-1865 abolitionist movement. The goal of the abolitionist movement was the immediate emancipation of all slaves and the end of racial discrimination and segregation advocating for immediate emancipation, distinguished abolitionists from more moderate anti-slavery advocates who argued for gradual emancipation and from free soil activists who sought to restrict slavery to existing areas and prevent its further spread west. Radical abolitionism was partly fueled by a religious fervor of the Second Great Awakening, which prompted many people to advocate for emancipation on religious grounds. Abolitionist ideas became increasingly prominent in northern churches and political and politics beginning in the 1830s, which contributed to the regional animosity between North and South leading up to a civil war. If you have a question or a comment, you can call us at one 510 9025 And you can chat with us at 
by logging in to uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parkers. What's up, Scotty? How you doing, bro? Hey, what's going on, Max? What's going on uh, to the listeners? Um, and uh, Johanna May join us this week. I know I didn't hear from the brother from last week, so I hope he's doing all right. No, I'm just playing with him. Uh, I've been seeing him still sharing information on social media and what have you, so hopefully he can join us tonight. But as I always state, man, I'm just living the best I can and doing the best I can behind these enemy lines where slavery is the law of the land. And I don't think that anyone can argue with me about that and say that it isn't. So if anybody would like to try, uh, 866-510-9025, hit star star to unmute yourself. Please watch your background noise. So uh, that's how I'm doing, Max. Just staying on the ground, man. That's good. That's good, Scotty. I spoke to Johanna about a week ago, and, you know, they've got him going through these training things, and they're changing his hours around, and he's said he's coming to pretty much a conclusion where he'll have Wednesdays off again and be able to be back with us on a regular basis. So it's just that corporate grind that's got him going right now. And we we got the door wide open. Anytime you're ready to come on home, come on home, bro. Well, I just had to hook up with him uh, through the Be Live channel for a new uh, abolitionist radio's uh, page. So if he, like, uh, is free in the mornings or afternoon, man, we could get on there right quick and do a little quick edition of the abolitionist daily that he used to do. That would be pretty awesome. Yep, that would definitely be a good thing, man. Uh, I'm kind of out of sorts today. I haven't been feeling well past few days, so excuse me if my energy is a little bit low, and I, I seem a little befuddled, but uh, I have my bad days, man. You know, I was uh, looking through the internet, and I ran across a conversation that was going on about me, and you know, Scotty, you've been involved in a few conversations about me where you have had to explain to people just what I am or who I am, and I appreciate that, you, uh, you know, being at my defense in such ways, but... Sometimes it just gets on my nerves that we still have people like this who will say some of the most ridiculous things. Like, you know, this one person that you were in a conversation with in regards to the Tanya Free interview that you had uh, labeled me the new Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> hey, funny, dude. I don't need a white man telling me what I should do. <laughs> I was kind of wondering what you were referring to. Um, when you posted in the planning discussion, the new Rachel Dolezal, because I stay away from that whole whole thing, man. You see a lot of social media posts about her and her condition and a lot of mocking her, a lot of, you know, I'm not really seeing any serious psychological discussions on why would a person claim to be that which they are, are not and want to identify with the historical suffering that people classified as black have experienced under the system of slavery, uh, race-based slavery. So, I mean, but I just, I was like, man, I don't like having conversations like that because they don't end up being productive. I'm like, what's the what's the logical conclusion to the end of all of this debate on is she black or can she identify as black and, and who's black and who came up with the classification and why? And it all calls back to slavery. But when I saw that, you know, uh, what Max is speaking of, I was invited to... Um, speak on 
Modern Day Slavery and Human Trafficking on one of our uh, network partners' uh, radio program, Tanya Free and Friends uh, radio show, which was on earlier like it is every Wednesday at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So I got some like a message, a text from Purcell, uh, one of the managers uh, behind the scenes, one of the brothers working behind the scenes, and he was like people was asking questions, you know, follow-up questions. Um, in the comment section on the website, TanyaFreeAndFriends.com for, you know, that show for that day, which, you know, is podcast now. And so I went back and I was answering some of the questions. Like one of the questions was, um, ask Scotty to give clarification of if he's talking about abolishing prisons in their entirety and then, you know, what do you come up with? And so I explained to that person that while there are people who say that they are abolitionists, they talk a lot about abolishing prisons, period. I have not really heard them talk about a plan on how they plan to do that and what they're going to replace it with. They just push the idea of abolishing prisons. But I'm I'm not that person. I have I'm I'm that's not the type of abolition I'm talking about. I'm focused on ending slavery as an industry and human beings being treated as a commodity. Everything that you could think of when you think of slavery, you know, stop thinking of it in past tense and know that it is presently with you. And, And so I was telling him that, you know, explaining that to him that no, because like the guy that killed here in North Carolina, they took his own two kids. I don't know if they was his own biological children or not, but he tried to claim that the um, the baby wasn't his, and that's what the argument was about, and he was hot. And so he he took the, uh, the black woman's children and stabbed them to freaking death, man, these two children. And so you're not going to tell me. You're going to have to put him somewhere, or he's going to get lynched out here. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, people who do commit crimes like that and any smirking about it in his mugshot, you know, I'm like the rest of them. The people ain't ready for you to be talking about, oh, we abolishing prisons. We just going to get rid of prisons, period. Well, you got to explain how you going to deal, deal with these circumstances when they come up. Um, because, you know, there are a lot of people who would want to see that person dead. And you, so how do you re, resolve that? So I don't have to get into that question. I'm saying, okay, let's let's work on the problem by reducing the number of people that's in the, on the prison plantation, and then you know we're in slavery, and we deal with the other stuff down the road. So it's all about taking uh, uh, steps, you know, uh, logical steps. You have a pecking order, and but then I came to the part where the person who's said, you know, I guess they looked you up on Facebook um, and looked at you as a a light-skinned black person. And I say you're a light-skinned black person because that's what the system says you are. I didn't create this racial classification. The people who was heavily invested in slavery came up with racial classifications as a way to continue it. The truth is my, my birth certificate says Negro. Well, that's black in contemporary terms. So you, so you were a Negro, not a mulatto, not a, a whatever. You were a Negro, probably the same as what your mother was classified as. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so. But then this person saying, "Well, who is Max? He can't speak on slavery because 
what? Who is he? The new Rachel Dolezal. I guess he was like thinking that you were white, actually white, and don't know your parentage. But again, this is where we get into people's own prejudices, own biases, own hate in their heart for other people to say something ridiculous like that because if you study abolitionism history in this country, you will know that that um, all I can say is uh, the majority of the ones I have read about, not all of them, but the majority of the ones who led violent uh, rebellions and, and some of the more prominent abolitionists that are classified as black when we write about them, when we talk about them, but the census got them as mulattoes, and and many of them were were you know uh, slaves themselves who escaped. So I'm like, you know, how are you going to try to divide up the abolitionist movement along your your uh, uh, color lines that the system created in the freaking first place? Now, I, I, I use racial classification of black because um, I came to this, especially it makes sense when I think about what Malcolm X said. Now, everybody know he changed his name after the uh, trip to Mecca, uh, his uh, mandatory pilgrimage uh, as an adherent to Islam. I forget what, what sect, you know, he practiced. But, you know, he said when the reporters asked him, so what, we got to change how we, you know, uh, call you now or call you by your new name? And he said, no, as long as this this system uh, exists, I'm going to be, you can call me Malcolm X because that's what the system has produced. That's what they call me. That's how I'm classified. That You know, so until we get rid of this system, I'm going to be Malcolm X. And so I came to the conclusion anytime somebody want to have an argument about how I self-identify or how I use terms and words and whatnot, that I, as long as the system exists that created racial classifications to begin with, just so they could continue slavery, and that's the only way they could do it, I'm going to continue to remind myself of that by calling myself black. And it reminds me of who the enemy is and who's do, who's really in charge of all of it. So those are my thoughts on it, well, Max. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that people resort to personal attacks because they don't like the questions that you ask or whatever. I was appreciative that she gave me the opportunity to, to talk on the program <clears throat> I'm always appreciative when media outlets, especially black media outlets, black run media outlets, give us an opportunity to speak about abolition. My criticism came in the form of uh, the frustration that I personally have when you come and you bring this new idea to people that this is not something you can reform. It's actually a crime against humanity. It's called slavery. And it's a much broader thing than what you were just aiming at before. And when you bring this across, as you did, so finely and well explained, and they immediately have this cognitive dissonance that comes up, and they'll say things, well, yeah, you're right, it's slavery. Okay, what do we need to reform to fix it? Because they don't get it, and they start trying to lead you to answer questions that are pre-existing in their mind rather than considering your argument as reality and taking it serious. And we've seen it happen so well, well, Max, many times. Well, Max, we have to also, that's a panel. She has like a rotating panel. And I think I know who you're talking about, the questions that kind of got you, you know, uh, uh, perturbed about that you just expressed was the young lady 
And that was also the young lady when I told her about Black Women's History Month. And I mean, excuse me, Women's History Month, but I'm talking about black women. And they the leading demographic since 1985 of being the most incarcerated. And how that's never talked about. And I'm talking about it, and you can hear more about it on New Abolitionist Radio. And and then that cognitive dissonance that you spoke about, it's like she couldn't believe it. But when I told her that statistic, she got interested. Because she was like in the world of celebrating black women's success, which is nothing wrong with that. You know, and that's all she's exposed to, like possibly a college-educated sorority person. I don't know all the details about her, so maybe she, you know, uh, uh, is in need of a daily dose of black pride. And so, you know, she talks about how many black women getting degrees and how many black women are the leading entrepreneur, small business owner, creators, and what have you. And, And that wasn't even in her purview. She didn't even know about it, and she admitted to that, not even knowing about that black woman's issue of 21st century slavery and human trafficking. So, so Max, I kind of understood that I was dealing with a person who is being exposed to a new ideal, no matter how old they are, or a new concept, or, again, people don't want to recognize that slavery was never abolished because that means slavery still exists, and they don't know how to confront that. Yeah, and there's this thing about people using fallacies. They build their life around fallacies, and I mean logical fallacies. That make no sense at all, but those are the foundations they build on, and they use them regularly in their communication with other people. One of the things that Dion said in this forum was, I don't know who Max Parsons is, but I don't need a white man preaching to me about what I should think. That's fallacy number one. He assumed he knew who I was, and then, blame me or claim that I was a white man and since I'm a white man I'm not worth listening to. And then the other thing that he said is another Rachel Dolezal, prisons serve a purpose and we need them. If privatization can save taxpayer dollars, I am okay with it. Well that tells you everything you know you need to know about the person that's talking right there who's using ad hominem attacks on a person that he don't even know. So, you know, it just there's no logical reasoning with anyone like that, and uh, I don't expect to even try to. I agree, Max, uh, but we are joined by Johanna Nelia. What's going <laughs> on, bro? Peace and welcome home, brother. Oh, man, peace, peace, brothers. Good to be here with you all. Man, I missed y'all. I missed the, the, the coming together, the fellowship, and just uh, getting that – getting that word out there, that release, and then getting informed and, and just being a part of it. So uh, definitely good to be back in. Thanks for saving my chair. <laughs> always, brother, always. Uh, yep, this the, the trilateral commission up in here. <laughs> uh, no doubt, man. That's what, crazy. Yeah, what, I came in, uh, what I came in hearing you talking about, that's crazy, man. Like, <laughs> wow. Man, I get my black card pulled all the time. All the time, you know what I mean? William Clayton Powell Jr. was as white as I am, and he defined black power. So I ain't trying to hear nothing these people are saying. I know what I am. I know where I come from. I know who my family is. All of these things. I have people in my family whose name is free, just like Tanya Free, and their name wasn't free because they were named after white slave masters. It's because they finally got free, and they took the name of free. So, yeah, it, it doesn't bother me a lot, but I, I'm kind of used to it these days, buddy. You know what I mean? It's that division that we create based on this fallacy called race, you know? 
I'm a child of the diaspora. You and Scott are children of the diaspora. I mean, what more do we need to say? Nothing. But like you said, you brought, you summed it up toward the end there of what um, what I was going to say the about the logical fallacy. I mean, obviously, we, we know at this point well beyond being baited into, you know, that kind of dead-end road. I mean, that's just going down a path of no, to nowhere. But the point of what they're trying to do is lead the, lead people away from the information, you know, lead people away from the solutions that's being offered, from the suggestions, from the, the, the answers that's being taught. And uh, they do that by bringing in those trivial, nonsensical, logical fallacy you know, misdirection attempts or whatever. So it's, it's, it's pointless. And, and honestly, like Scotty was commenting too about the, the history of abolitionism. I mean, we all know what time it is. And uh, once you get past a certain time, you know, with the Zulus or something, you get past a certain thing, uh, Queen Nzinga, you get a handful of African, you know, leaders that, that fought. Once you get past Haiti uh, and, and the, the true revolution that ended slavery in that situation, I mean, you get you get a handful of, of black folks that honestly was the ones fighting, but you got a handful of, of whites and mixed races and people that just period realized, look, I'm on the wrong end of this deal. <laughs> like, you ain't going to keep stepping on my neck, so we're going to have to fight about it. And that's really all it takes. It don't matter really what your color is. If you can recognize oppression and you're willing to bust caps for it, you're willing to bust some jaws, you're willing to strike a blow that can't be taken back and leave, actually leaves a mark, then, you know, you could be an abolitionist. Man. Yeah, this whole racial fallacy thing has really messed everybody's minds up. But we spent enough time, I think, talking about it now. we got so many stories to get into this week, and uh, they pretty amazing stories at that, you know, like the one that Scotty put as the headline, how more people are being arrested for marijuana than anything else combined. You know what I mean? I think we've spoken of that before, but it's yeah. pretty amazing to even think about, like, all the people that are in jail, being arrested, going through 14, 13 million, going through the jails, going through the prisons, 750,000 a year, in and out. Uh, all of that is mainly behind marijuana. 97%, I believe, the FBI said of all crimes are nonviolent crimes. So, yeah, like that one. And, uh, of course, uh, California now is, again, pounding its chest, talking about what it's going to do. We're about to free 9,500 9, inmates to reduce state prison population. Well, we heard this story before, and we know what they did. We added up the numbers to figure out how much the men they were supposed to be releasing were worth. We knew they didn't want to give up that money, and they didn't. And instead of releasing people, what they do? Send them to Arizona. Right. Arizona is the freaking human trafficking hub of the United States, where people, states all over the country, just send in their prisoners to Arizona. You know, so there's a lot of stories that we can go on. Anything in particular you want to start off with, Scotty? I thought he said he was back. Uh, back um, not oh. really. You can just go down the list. Um, yeah. I'm, okay. And for the well, listeners, I'm doing something new. Um, 
you know, for those that listen through blacktalkradionetwork.com, but we also post it because we do our planning in btrcommunity.com uh, for a new social black experience. But I'm starting to, I figured out how I can just grab the stories and then, you know, just post them in the description for our promo for the night, which later also hold the podcast. And so it just make it easier for me to just go down that list. So wherever you want to start, though, Max, you the host. Yeah, well, I guess I'll start with Sister Crystal Roundtree. She did a wonderful interview with uh, Eddie Conway about the uh, Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in D.C. coming up August 19th, which we are supporters of here, and I'll be one of the speakers there doing everything I can, and I know you guys are as well, to organize and get as many people there. But her and Eddie talked for about 20 minutes. It's in two parts, which we're putting on new abolitionist radio. She really broke down a lot of, uh, you know, the main factors that we're looking for, for instance, like the removal of the exception clause from the 13th Amendment, which allows for legalized slavery, to have congressional hearings on the effects of the 13th Amendment over these past 150 plus years and you know what it has done to us our society uh this way we can have discovery and we can find out who did what and what was criminal acts and what wasn't and who was responsible for these criminal acts and who's profiting off of this modern day slavery and human trafficking you can't have those questions be answered without discussion and discovery and that's what we're asking for uh, more than anything else so uh, she really broke a lot of that down. It's yeah, wonderful to know that she's also a healer, a practicing nurse, trained nurse. So, you know, of course, something like this is a healing thing for the entire nation because it gives us a focus. Like the many of the prisoners who have really looked at this as the answer to a lot of the problems have said that they've never seen anything like this before where we could all come together under the same cause. Who doesn't want to end slavery? If you don't want to end slavery, guess what you must be? So I put it up on the website there at Facebook, so you can always have that dual experience and check it out or bookmark them and take a look at them. It's well worth seeing. She was very articulate on everything that she said and held it down well. And especially speaking to Eddie Conway, considering his history, who is today our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. That brother spent 44 years in prison, six of those in solitary confinement, and he has been involved in change since he was a teenager. Brothers? Yeah. <clears throat> the, uh, the thing with, with Brother Marshall, you know, shout out to him, and I, I love to see him every time on uh, Real, uh, Real News Network you know, producing news stories and, and still doing research and still working to reach back in and get whoever he can, you know, uh, released as well and just spreading the word and the information about it. And, you know, I love to listen to him when he's talking uh, in his interviews and in his reports, because he's saying everything that we're saying. So I know this is a man that's been, you know, in that situation, he's in the plantation. He knows it intimately all of those years of his life, like his entire adult life just gone. So for him to be out on the other side now, and he's, I mean, he sounds like one of us. You know, he could be right here on New Africa yeah, Radio. Uh, I kind of disagree. I don't think he sounds like one of us, man. I think he sounds like a man who's been through 44 years of pain well, and punishment. Right, I'm taking liberty yeah, to say that. But we're on the same wavelength. He's not, he's not one of these voices where we hear him saying mass incarceration and people with low wage jobs are the same as, you know, we're not hearing all that side talk talk. He's talking directly to 
what it is and calling it what it is. Yeah, I just see the highlight though when I was watching the video and if uh, Max, um, I thought you posted a video. I can share some of that interview, um, not the whole thing, but we could share some of it. But when I watched it, what I see in his face, man, and just the way he speak is, man, they, them them uh, them slavers was hard on that brother, man. That brother been through something. Well, uh, right there, he, and and you know he you is know he a, has a rich history. Okay, I'm sorry. He is an elder, but I'm sure uh, all that torture uh, has something to do with him. Just like when I interview Robert King or speak to Mr. King, uh, one of the Angola Three, um, and you know um, uh, Albert Woodfox just recently got out, but they spent yeah. an equal amount of time in prison. But when I speak to Mr. Albert King, I was like. Man, you're so articulate and talking to you, you know, the kindness in your voice, I would never know that you suffered all them years, decades like that uh, for a crime you didn't commit in solitary confinement. And because, you know, you was associated with a prison chapter of the Black Panther Party. And he, you know, just told me, you know, he have his, his days, man, and his nights. Uh, we just not, you know, we, I guess they get it together so they could do them programs. So we're talking about permanent scars. And that's what slavery do to you. It leaves right. permanent scars, physical and emotional. And so, you know, that's what I got from the interview, just watching it. I already know the information. I know the problem. But that just for some reason, man, I was looking at him. I was like, you know, thinking of my grandfather or something. My grandfather, of course, ain't, ain't never been through nothing like that. But as a grand, as an elder in the community and knowing what kind of punishment this system put on that man, you know, it is it is great to be able to watch him on screen uh, doing the best he can to get the news, you know, a uh, 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 news that matter. And I appreciate the Real News Network based in Baltimore for giving him that opportunity. But yeah, man, should I play some of it? Yeah, I, I, if you don't mind, I just want to say a couple more things by Eddie Conway. You know, he earned three college degrees while he was uh, enslaved in, the, in prison. He formed a uh, prisoner's union uh, while he was in there. And uh, he done many. Uh, he was very involved in CAPS, you know, the Committee Against Prison Slavery, as well with the Thirteenth Amendment. Brother never stopped fighting. He's a veteran from Vietnam. And never stopped fighting then, and never stopped fighting in the uh, in in the prisons. I remember while listening to his story on the Real News Network of the ten part series, uh, where he was talking about the day that he decided he no longer wanted to be involved with the military. He was about to sign up to go, you know, to Vietnam, and uh, then he saw what was going on in Newark, New Jersey, with tanks on the streets, and one man sitting atop this tank, this little white guy, as he described him, holding his gun, ready to shoot 50 caliber bullets into women and children right there in Newark, New Jersey, right where I was at growing up, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that changed his whole perspective on everything, and he decided not to go after all, and uh, left the military after that, and tossed his uniform into a river somewhere his entire uniform, into a river somewhere. So he feels much like you feel when it comes to his military service. But while he was in prison, that brother was extremely active. You remember he was, I believe, the Minister of Defense for the Black Panthers in, uh, in the Baltimore, Maryland area. And that was one of the places where the Maryland chapter had actually been established by a government agent posing as a Black Panther member who was previously the guard of Malcolm X but he was a government agent. 
Anyway, go ahead and play a few uh, minutes of it. Let's hear what Crystal had to say. Welcome to The Real News. I'm Eddie Conway coming to you from Baltimore. Thanks for joining me for this edition of Rattling the Bars. Recently, late last year, around October 2016, a number of prisons uh, got together and decided to join in a national strike. Over 40 prisoners, over 40 prisons actually participated. Uh, it, the strike lasted for approximately three weeks. We covered it the entire time. At some point toward the end, there was at least 12 states involved and at least 24 prisons lasted throughout the three uh, weeks. Um, because the st national strike was suppressed from on the inside, a lot of the outside organizations and supporters decided that they needed to do something outside to support the prisoners' demands for their uh, redress of their grievances. And so I have today one of the national organizers of a march that's going to take place in Washington, D.C. in August. And But before we talk about that, I'd like to talk to her about her organization, what they have been doing, and why they are organizing. So please join me in welcoming Crystal Roundtree. Uh, Crystal, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Eddie, on The Real News. Okay, Crystal, can you tell me a little bit about your organization, what it does, and why it, it came together? Absolutely. Uh, the name of my organization is I Am We Prison Advocacy Network. This was a collaborative effort between myself, the prisoners, and uh, several law students. And I Am We is a human rights organization. We work directly with the prisoners in a hands-on fashion in an attempt to have their voice heard, to get their concerns out on the main stage. And so that's one of the primary uh, goals and objectives of I Am We Prison Advocacy Network. You know, we've, we, we were hearing and we've heard so many times that the people who claim to represent the prisoners, um, it oftentimes excluded them from the process. And we have a strong belief that you cannot represent people unless you include them into that process. And with that thinking, I Am We um, came into existence um, as a part of the I Am We family, there is a collection of prisoners um, under the banner of Jailhouse Lawyer Speaks. JLS is the name that most people probably have heard of. Um, but Jailhouse Lawyer Speak, as I mentioned, is a growing entity behind the wall, a collection of prisoners that uh, educate, agitate, um, encourage other prisoners to stand up, to be knowledgeable about what's going on and how to take those um, necessary steps to bring about, uh, you know, the real change that needs to happen back there. Um, I Am We Prison Advocacy Network, another one of our main goals and missions is to bridge the gap 
between the inside and the outside. We do this through building up networks. You know, the networks are resources for the prisoners themselves, for family members, um, for activists, advocates, anyone, all things um, prison related. Abolitionists, all things prison related. I am we has a goal to make those connections. And um, up to this point, you know, the upcoming uh, March on Washington, the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March is by far, by far, the largest thing that I and we um, has seen. I and we really took up this cause because it, it, it's such a needed and important cause. You know, um, we are based in a African uh, philosophy, which is called Ubuntu. And you know, that uh, concept of Ubuntu really speaks to the interconnectedness of humanity. And absolutely, uh, when you hear and, and, and when you come to realize what the reality is, the human rights violations that occur, that occur behind the wall for so many of our brothers and sisters, this was something that I and we, uh, we were obligated to take up this call. Well, you're, you're, you're in North Carolina. Is that it? Is this a statewide organization or if, is it larger? Is it regional? Is it national? I am we is uh, based out of North Carolina. We are getting our hands in other areas of the country. Um, it's really taken off, I must say, over the last six months in particular, although we have been in existence for the last two years. Um, I can definitely say that over the last six months, there has been such an interest, a prisoner-driven interest. I must say they are really encouraging their families and friends to start IMWE chapters throughout the country. So it's growing. Um, I anticipate that it will continue to grow and become a real force and resource out here for prisoners um, and their families. One of the things I understand is that you've been working with uh... Uh, Jalil Mutakin, uh, who I call Anthony Bottom, because I was in jail with him for decades. Uh, mm -hmm. So what's your connection to the political prisoners and that movement? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, Brother Jalil Mutakin has been such an inspiration uh, for this particular movement. Um, you know, one of the big things that we are challenging is the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and his ideas. You know, we want to, it's our goal to build upon, this isn't a new issue. You know, people, great individuals have tackled this um, in, in, in times past. It's our goal to build upon what has already been uh, done and established. And Brother Jalil Mutakim, um, his uh, 1979 memorandum of law challenging the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is absolutely something that is an important resource for individuals to read to have a better understanding of what we're trying to say, the point we're trying to get across, why this is a human rights violation, why it does not deserve a place in our Constitution. And because of that, Jaleel has absolutely been an inspiration. Him and I correspond occasionally uh, via the mail system, and his ideas have really been um, considered and, and, and involved in this entire process um, right from the start.
Max? Yes, sir, man. Like I said, she was uh, did a, a great job of holding it down and, and explaining what was going on and what they're about. She did mention one thing that was very profound, and people need to understand that. You can't represent people without letting their voice be heard. How you going to you know, speak for people that never get a chance to speak for themselves? You know, um, and, and that's what was going on with a lot of this prison talk within the halls of justice and, and lawmakers. Well, you know, you know that's the certainly something. Be heard. That's yes? something certainly that I feel like we have facilitated with prisoners, um, you know, connecting with us the uh, best way they can through social media and calling in to the program over the years. So not just, man, when did they first start calling in and making that connection with us so that we could then, you know, be um, um, there, get their voices out there in terms of the propaganda game and and spreading the information. So, um, yeah. And and you speak for the political prisoners and allow them to speak I've been trying to reestablish political prisoner radio. I just couldn't host it anymore with the network growing and then trying to figure out how do I increase the output, meaning downloads and, you know, just getting our, all our uh, media out there for the whole network. And so I had to drop it. And then uh, Sister Mejo's going through some personal issues right now. Um, I don't want to put those out publicly. She talks about them on, on social media, but um, I try to bring somebody else in and, and never did hear back from this person. So I'm going to have to start. Um, um, I'm trying to set something up to do it through Be Live, actually, through Be Live TV, because a lot of these uh, uh, former political prisoners are on Facebook, and at Be Live, they could easily connect, man. So, like, you know, the little interview me and you did. So I guess I could do that as a replacement, you know, for of the regular broadcast of Political Prisoner Radio, which was on for a couple of years every Sunday night at 9. I, I, You know, I just hate that the resources wasn't there to continue with, but we still maintain the page and still, you know, circulate the information uh, because I'm in that loop. So the information I get that's meant for the public, I'll put that out there, you know, through social media as well. Johanna, did you have something, bro? I see you unmuted. Oh, I'm just going to say that's how I became a part of New Abolitions Radio was through political uh, prisoner radio. That's that's what I was listening to. That's how I found Black Talk Radio Network, period, was listening to political prisoner radio. And uh, it just tied into everything that I had been studying on my own and told me where the people were that I had, you know, couldn't find and didn't know and just little bits and pieces of their stories. And like I found them all in prison. And I heard their stories more thoroughly told and the pieces start coming together of what I have been studying. I mean, everything from names that I knew to finding out about uh, Thurgood Marshall's son on my own and then tying it all together. I mean, it just all came together in political prisoner radio. So, I mean, I, I can't be nothing but an advocate for the program returning and for the value of it. Because, I mean, it made it a way for me to be a part of this program for the last several years and to learn all that I've learned in that time and then all the people that we've been able to educate as a result of New Abolitionist Radio. So, I mean, it all ties in together. Word. Uh, just for the record, this Monday I'll be recording with Eddie Conway to do a segment myself on the 13th Amendment. So I'll be talking to him about the 13th Amendment 
And one of the things that I said she mentioned is about, you know, having the people who you're representing be able to speak for themselves and be heard as well. It's something that ties into the a story that I want to put side by side with this interview with Crystal Roundtree. And that's the uh, Article 5 Convention of States that I've been trying to warn people about that's coming together. I'm having some reception problems today, so pardon me if that seems like I have to get disconnected periodically. You can hear me now, right? I can hear you. Okay. So, yeah. So, there's this situation going on now where the Article 5 Convention of States is being formed, and so far they're up to 10 states now. At one, They only need 34 in order to propose new amendments, and it has the potential to be a uh, for a runaway convention where anything can happen. Let me read a couple of things to you about it, and then I want to play a two-minute clip. This comes from Forbes magazine, and it tells you who's behind, and it tells you who is behind this uh, convention of states. It's well financed, but it should be. It's financed by international corporations and spearheaded by the Tea Party, which is a known racist organization. And all the videos that you see about this convention of states, you'll see nothing but white faces throughout the whole thing. Anyway, in Forbes magazine, it says Forbes magazine argues. You also have to subtract the states which have passed the Delegate Limitation Act. This would prohibit delegates from considering any amendments other than those requested by their state. The American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, the lobby group founded and funded by the billionaire Koch brothers, is very keen to see all states pass a Delegate Limitation Act and have even drafted model legislation. ALEC and the corporations they represent believe the delegate to a constitutional convention must be closely controlled to prevent a runaway convention from passing amendments unfriendly to corporate interests, e.g. an amendment ending the corporate personhood and limiting the ability of corporations to overrule state and municipal laws. Three states, three states Georgia, Indiana, and Florida, have passed delegation or delegate limitation legislation. Another seven states, Idaho, Michigan, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Virginia, and Wisconsin are considering it. Now, with that being said, I want to let the listeners hear this two-minute clip and it's on the New Abolitionist Radio page where Arizona News talks about how important this is. This has never been done in history before, which is why I keep trying to point it out. And there's some things I have to say after the clip. Yeah, I'm trying to find the clip, Max. Yeah, I'm sorry, Max. I'm trying to find the clip. You there? Yes, sir. I'm here. It's on the uh, New Abolitionist Radio page. I posted it there. Yeah, that, um... Let me see. Yeah, I'm not on that page. I'm in the uh, planning group. What's the video I'm looking for? There it uh, is. Arizona, it's the second one in the list, or well, not the second one, but it's, it's right down in the front. It says "Final Thoughts." All right, let me go. Let me go to Facebook. Picture. Let me go to Facebook page since you just posted it there. That'll be the quickest way. Yeah, uh, but you know, um, I've been hearing people saying, you know, like politics is a waste of time and. And certainly they're coming to the correct assessment that that the oppressed people 
uh, the poor people, black people, non-white people are not winning in politics, but I don't see how you can ignore stuff like this where they made changes to what they call the supreme law of the land, and you can claim your sovereignty all you want to until they send them slave catchers to your door. Um, it's it's not going to matter. It's plenty of sovereigns in on, on the prison plantation right now. So this kind of stuff concerns me, man. And how do we get in the door to put the 13th on the table to remove? Does that mean we got to make deals with devils and perhaps compromise and say, okay, we allow, we will, we will uh, uh, agree not to table corporate personhood, and and but we in exchange we want Thirteenth Amendment uh, uh, removed. So those are some it's of the possible. Yeah, you know what I'm saying because some of the business shows I listen to, like Tando Radio Show, Blacks in Business Radio. I'll be listening to people who talk about how everyday people can make those corporate laws work for them, you know? So, uh, and I've certainly seen evidence of, of that. So to me, I might would sit at the table and deal with these devils with the aim to remove the 13th. Okay, I'm on the page. I'm looking for, let me see, Alec, is that a video that looks like a photo, uh, Max? It's a red, red and blue uh, video, the image on it, okay. says final thoughts. Red. Arizona okay, okay, I saw that on the other page, but that's not what it say. Okay, it's got the uh, the um, the guy there, final thoughts, yeah. See it. It's final it. thoughts now. One small step for liberty, one giant leap for the Constitution. Something happened in Arizona this week that did not make the evening news. But it puts us a step toward what could be the most profound moment in modern American history. Something happened in the Arizona State House that grabbed virtually no attention from reporters on the legislative beat, yet could be as significant as the revered First Amendment. Lawmakers in the Grand Canyon State passed a resolution to participate in an Article 5 convention of the states. Arizona is now the ninth state to pass such a resolution, joining Alaska, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Indiana, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. Now, this is uncharted territory. An Article 5 convention of the states has never been triggered in the 229-year history of the Constitution. But the framers of the founding document infused Article 5 into the Constitution as a ripcord to be pulled in times of national emergency like when the federal Leviathan spins out of control as it is today. The framers gave we the people Article 5 in order to bypass government to proffer amendments to the Constitution when elected officials refuse. For example, congressional term limits, Supreme Court term limits, a balanced budget requirement, abolition of the 17th Amendment, and so on. And so here we are. Slightly closer to liberty's history. 34 states are needed to trigger an Article 5. Therefore, it's 9 down, 25 to go in order to go where no American has gone, rein in an out-of-control federal government, and achieve constitutional history. Sign the petition at cosaction.com and get as many of your friends and family to do the same. With your full address, your state legislators will know that you really are their constituents in their district. Our well, there you have it. Uh, they are moving towards a, con uh, a convention of states. There's a difference between a constitutional convention and a convention of states. 
And this convention of states has the ability to put in amendments or change amendments. That's why they warned that it could be a runaway convention. Where I heard the word abolish. I heard the word abolish used. Yeah, they're looking for uh, what their main goal is. A single issue thing is government spending. So that's what they allege as their main goal. But that's basically just saying, let me put the head in, pardon my French. But once you get this thing started, anything can happen. It's right. a very, very dangerous circumstance. Right. And we're talking about 66 of 99 legislators are Republican-controlled. This is that hostile environment that the NAACP was so worried about in my conversation with them about the 13th Amendment. And if you, as I said, if you look at the videos and you look at the groups that they're associated with, this is the alt-white, alt-right, white nationalist organizations with the money and the corporations, international corporations backing them to affect our national constitution. Yeah, very dangerous, but seven, they're, they're still far away from that goal. So if they want to meet that well, goal, do if they want to meet that goal, you know, uh, then they need wider spread uh, support, which is why they want to play that video all the way to the end because I'm not sure I want that going out. But like you said, Max, the corporations that are involved in passing laws to to uh, modernize slavery, you talk about ALEC, man, we've done a number of programs on their role in modern slavery and human trafficking, but do you want these people holding the Constitution, in control of a constitutional convention, the, the so-called legislatures that's in the pockets of these corporations, Anything could happen, like Max said. That's a very dangerous situation unless, unless, unless you can get a majority of abolitionists, a slavery abolitionists in that room to cut deals. That's how business works in this country. That's how politics works in in this country. So, you know, um, we cannot afford to to you know think that these things will never happen because it's knocking at the door. So, for example, and I'm gonna give Johanna a chance to jump in here. I'm just sitting here thinking about the first Constitution, the first con- the very first Constitutional Convention. How did it come out that they let slavery exist? continue to exist and didn't abolish it then. Well, that's because they had more slavers in the room than abolitionists in the room. I know, for example, one of my ancestors who is now being recognized here in this in, in this county for his contributions and his family's contribution to the American Revolutionary War, but he wasn't invited to the Constitution. Samuel Rankin wasn't invited to the Constitutional Convention. I wonder if the fact that he wasn't practicing slavery had something to do with that. So now they're talking about another such constitutional uh, convention. And so could this be the one where the people take hold of their destiny and they overwhelm it and just take over the whole process because every state constitution that we have read, and we've read them all, every state constitution, including the federal constitution, says the people have the right to abolish their governments and remake them as they see fit when, when we're living under the tyranny of our government. It don't get more, I don't know uh, what's worse than slavery. If slavery ain't tyranny, I don't know what is. I don't understand the definition of tyranny. Well, Johanna, just to be clear, they need 34 states. 
and they got six. are already on I mean, board. Nine. Ten have already voted towards it. So ten are legitimate now. They're signed on. But there's 28 that's on board already and are ready to sign on. Okay. You on it? I mean, this is something that, that has been on the table for the last few years. Um, so I don't know if this originated. I can imagine it. I mean, knowing the climate under the presidency of Barack Obama, that, you know, this is one of the kind of a not so well thought out, but seen as being totally um, unstoppable and, 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 having sweeping changes and, you know, all this kind of a thing, like kind of like the conservative parties have done, um, even with adopting the Tea Party stance, I mean, creating the Tea Party, adopting the stance of the Tea Party, abandoning the the former Republican face, and now, you know, culminating in having Donald Trump as the president. I think all of this is as a result of the time that, you know, they were dealing with trying to stop and get rid of and totally you know, steal all power and ability from Barack Obama of being able to do anything on the surface, you know, for people that are casually looking to say he can't do nothing. So I think that's where this came from, because I remember a few years ago reading articles about it, and I didn't think much of it at the time, but, you know, they had 20 or more states on board, you know, a few years back. This is 2017 now. So like you said, it's 28 states. I mean, this this is real. These people really are going to do this and i've seen some articles and kind of revisited since max since you've been talking about it where there's pros and cons to it and i just have to agree with, with what you all are saying i mean the thing that we have to do is take advantage of the fact that that they're making these kind of moves and i, I mean i can see this as being a situation like how congress or like legislation whether it's local or all the way up to the federal level will pass a bill that people actually ask for but it's got all kind of riders on it that they don't know nothing about and then, you know, okay, well, we got this, we passed and we said, we're going to give you this and we, you know, we're going to do what you want, but we threw an extra in there, a one line rider that you didn't know nothing about that said, you know, we can, we can open your email or, you know, just whatever, something crazy that you would never ask for. I, I think there's room for an abolitionist measure to be added to whatever they come up with. And like you said, whether we're in a position of negotiating saying, well, you know, you can't do that unless you do this. And then we give up something that, you know, I guess we figure we can live with, but we've got to end slavery. Or if it just gets tucked in as a, as a one-liner, I think there's, I think it could happen either way. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see though. I mean, it's definitely worth us reporting on it um, and, and staying out in front of, the information. Um, but again, we got to look at the people that are involved in making, you know, making these changes. Who are the actual faces of the conservative change? Did we lose Max? I think Max said he would He be. said he was having some connection. Yeah. yeah. Connection so I'm going to go ahead and take us to break. You're listening okay, to. Okay, give him a chance to get in. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio Broadcasting on the Black Talk Radio Network. Join us every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time for a two-hour broadcast on news related to 21st century slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back. Okay. Give up on my way. 
Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm sorry about earlier. I'm having some technical difficulties out here in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina. So pardon me. Um, I just want to add a couple more thoughts, and, I, and then I want uh, give Scotty a chance to tell us the story about the Maryland man who went to New York and killed somebody. But uh, before that, I just want to say that I'm not sure what to think of this. We have to think outside the box now, just like we had to think outside the box during the Clinton-Trump campaign. We had to figure out how a loss could be constructive for us. And this is the same thing. They're in control of this. They're moving forward. They have the money to make it happen. They've got their agenda. As far as they're concerned, this is a done deal. It's just a matter of time. When you have billionaires of this merit and a group like Alex, who's in bed with politicians, bashing it, it's going to happen. We also see that it's dominated by Tea Party and uh, uh, alt-right type individuals as well. practice uh, racism. So we have to be concerned with that. So how can we make this work for us is the question I think all of us should be thinking about for a while and whether or not we can even get into it. They might have the doors shut so tight that we can't get involved in that circumstance. And it's exactly what we've been asking for. In the meantime, they may try to jump the gun on us. All right. Any final comments? No, I didn't, I don't have anything else to say about that. Um, Johanna, did right. you have anything else about that before we move on to uh, this next story? No, I mean, other than it's, it's exactly what we talk about with voting and, and and being fresh off the voting season. You know, we've had this conversation with people for years. Nobody's saying uh, you, you're dumb to vote. Nobody's saying don't vote. It's just saying if you're going to vote, assign a purpose to your vote assign a demand to your vote create a situation where your vote can be exchanged for some degree of accountability that you can call that person to the table about whether they carry out what they promised you they would do and if they can give you a clear laid out plan of well we couldn't do it this time but this is how we can get it done so keep supporting me because we're going to do it i mean nobody's saying there's got to be a light switch just switch it on switch it off you get what you want because you voted but at least engage the system to the degree that you can have uh, an ongoing relationship with the people that you elect. And when situations like this come up where it is a serious, I mean, this is, this is, this is the largest degree of magnitude that the States can really have on affecting the federal government and our procedures in this country, like as a nation, as a whole, when you bring in all these States into a constitutional co- uh, convention like this, and it's a bad thing that we had a hundred million people vote in November and you might have, I wouldn't even imagine you got a million out of those hundred million that have an ongoing relationship with all of those elected officials who will represent their state and their jurisdiction and will make a decision. And none of those people have a, a say so in it. So this is kind of the the playing it out that we of what you know like the scenario is is it's explained during voting season and we're telling you look assign a demand you know demand accountability find out who will give you what you want before you just give them your vote don't be the congressional black caucus just saying the real world effect of racism erosion was created by the black caucus and the black caucus can you hear me 
Yes, we can hear you. That was background noise coming off a of max line. Oh, okay. Well, no, I mean, I, I'll sum it up. I'm, I'm, I think people get what I'm saying. It's just, you know, you got to demand accountability out of these people. You can't right. just say I voted and then stand back and watch them create a constitutional con- uh, convention and pass a bunch of stuff that don't have nothing to do with you. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Also, you can't say, well, I don't vote, <laughs> so it ain't got nothing right. to do with me. Yeah. Okay. Keep thinking that. <laughs> what? Tell me what laws you violating and getting away with. Now, I ain't talking about little petty stuff, but I'm saying there are certain things that you do because the law say you have to do them. So right. when you got people coming together uh, and corporate, controlled by a, a corporate entity that has shown that what side of the battlefield line it's on, and it's on the side of slavers. And they putting together a constitutional convention, and you don't think you ought to be in that room? Learn from history. Look at what they did with the first constitution, and we still dealing with the effects of that, what, 200 years later? Right. So next story, though, um, it's two stories. I'm going to tie them together. As Max said, um, the uh, white supremacist terrorists, this guy who believed in the religion of white supremacy. I call it a religion because he believes that white people are superior to everyone else, to all non-white people, and that's not a fact. So beliefs are are usually relegated to religion. religion. So he's a believer in the religion of white supremacy, and you all have heard about the attack on Timothy uh, Coleman in New York, 62-year-old, maybe 66-year-old um, man just trying to survive, collecting bottles or cans, yeah, bottles and cans out of the um, trash bin to recycle because that's how many elderly people in this country uh, supplement their income or they're eating cat food and what have you. So while he's doing that, uh, here come this this uh, white supremacist terrorist fresh out the military, spent nine years in the military, and, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? James Harris Jackson. I don't know if he related to Andrew Jackson, but um, that's his name. So the first story says that the white supremacists are now lamenting the backlash they're getting after, fatal NY, after the fatal NYC sword attack. This is an article from, um, if I could open that up, I'll tell you the New York Daily News. Uh, they actually have a clip in a, a post by David Boruff. Again, this is the New York Daily News. It is trying to load up this clip. I'll let you, we'll go ahead and run that one. But they fear that they're going to be unfairly discriminated against. What do you think that, uh, do they believe that they're now going to be charged for these heinous acts of terror, just like non-white people are? When it, whenever these uh, Arab-looking dudes or black dudes who practice in Islam and they're connected to such attacks, uh, immediately, there's no question, everybody's on the same page, this was an act of terrorism. But when it came to, when it comes to people like James Harris Jackson, the news media can't make up its mind of what he is, is this a hate crime, is this an act of terrorism, you know, what is this? So... So now these, uh, like the Daily Stormer founder, Andrew Anglin, he wrote a letter 
and he's saying that James Jackson does not represent white supremacy. Jackson, a white army veteran, is accused of plunging his 26-inch sword into 66-year-old Timothy Coleman in Midtown on Monday night. White supremacy is a religion of peace. So here's a white supremacist admitting that he he's practicing a religion. All right, go straight to the source. White supremacy is a religion of peace, and the overwhelming majority of white supremacists are peaceful members of society who do not agree with stabbing random black people with swords, Anglin wrote. The attack has nothing at all to do with the religion of white supremacy, and white supremacists are under no obligation to apologize uh, for this attack. So he went on to whine more about, you know, white supremacists now will be subject to unfair scrutiny and prejudice. What what does he mean? They're going to be racially profiled or something? Is that what he's talking about? That they're going to have to go through extra screening when they get on the airplane or, you know, when when um, they're going to get extra scrutiny when they apply for licenses to own firearms. You know, they're nonprofits. These are nonprofits who have accounts in, and, you know, probably a bunch of the brand name base. We talk about this underwriting slavery as well as investing in it today. But they, you know, got the federal government allows people on their taxes to uh, take a deduction for a donation to these types of, uh, of churches, the Church of White Supremacy. So, um, yeah, that's that first story. But the other story that's connected to it, let me see if we want to hear what what they're saying in this report, because I haven't had a chance to review it, but we'll we'll give it a try. Dude in white. That was stood stood out to me. Why is this dude in white? That's all we're seeing here. I don't know if there's going to be any commentary, but them putting authorities putting him in the car in an all white jumpsuit. Did they change from the color orange, or you know what what's going on? Is that white? You have the media here. What do you want to say? Why'd you do it? Are you a Nazi? Did you vote for Trump? You feel like you accomplished your mission? Okay, that's it. Paparazzi asking them questions. Did he accomplish his mission and, and all of that? And I actually wrote an article uh, about it, Fear of a Black Planet, The Terrorist Tale of James Harris Jackson. That's published on Black Talk Radio Network, uh, dot com. But... Um, that article also talks about this other story, uh, which is in the lineup. Prosecutors charge man with murder as an act of terrorism in New York stabbing. And I referenced this in my article, Fear of a Black Planet. Uh, prosecutors in New York have upgraded the charges against a white man who police say admitted to fatally stabbing a black man in a burst, burst of racial hatred, indicting him on two new charges of murder as an act of terrorism. And as I um, noted in my article, Fear of a Black Planet, on blacktalkradionetwork.com, 
that this might be the first time in history that I've read about and I've read a lot of history, especially here in the United States, that a white man has been charged with an act of terrorism for an attack on a black person. I ain't talking about Timothy McVeigh where he his target was was said to be the federal government. He blew up a federal the, the uh, Murray building, they say, so that he was charged with uh, attack against the United States as an act of terrorism or the corporation USA Inc. So I, I don't know, guys, help me out. Is this the first time you ever heard of a, 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 a member of the religion and adherent of the religion of white supremacy um, being charged with a terrorist act for attacking a black person, non-white person? I mean, the James Byrd uh, Matthew Shepard hate crime act is the only thing I could think of that you know what but I don't know that they said that it was terrorism uh, they were just, no that they was weren't just, charged with terrorism they were charged under hate crimes yeah so I don't think it I don't think I've heard that either Timothy McVeigh was he terrorism yeah but it wasn't he was saying that it's not qualifying as being against a black person specifically I don't know. It's possible, Scotty. I couldn't say for sure. Um, maybe someone could call in. And no, Timothy McVeigh was charged with terrorism for an attack on the U.S. federal government, not a federal building, not an attack on black people. Right, right. Yeah, that's a very big difference, in the, including the hate crime of it all. You know, one of the first things, though, that bothered me is that the New York Times actually put out these uh, Twitter fools and Facebook fools who were just saying anything. It was like they were presenting their case for them, saying, look, we're just good people. But it's not all like that. They want us to feel sorry for white racist nationalists. You know, it put me in mind, I was thinking of the Nazis and saying to myself, I bet you there were Nazis out there feeding the hungry, and I bet you there was Nazis out there helping people get homes. I bet you there was Nazi priests and Nazi this and Nazi that. But that still, you're still a damn Nazi. You're still part of a damn genocide. So just because you sit home and watch Fox TV and every now and then throw out the N-word doesn't mean that you're innocent. Well, yeah, that bothered me. And, you know, uh, one of the brothers that works there, which would be Sean King at the New York Times, called him out just recently saying that, the New York Times and the New York Post in particular showed their true colors on how they expressed what happened with this whole crime, where they started bragging about the man's dress, you know, talking about what type of person and how he's dapper and all these different things that have nothing to do with the crime, and then criminalizing the victim, pulling out his uh, arrest records from 20, 30 years ago, talking about how he is a career criminal. Basically saying, look, it's just an animal. It's okay to put him down. Go ahead and do it again. <laughs> this stuff is, is just out of hand. And it's white privilege at its finest when they own the media and allow these criminal acts to occur through the media, which incite violence across hey, the Max, entire Max, nation. Hey, Max, 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 bro, why don't you hang up and give us a call back, bro, if you're able, because it's like... Okay really terrible. Uh, Johanan, are you still on the board, bro? Yeah, I'm yeah. still uh, I'm still here. Your thoughts? It's, uh, your thoughts? It's, I mean, can you I mean, recall? And what's your whole thoughts about his reasoning as well? Fear of a black planet, man. 
you know, going yeah, back to. I don't to, believe in this uh, stuff, Scotty. I mean, we've been talking about this for so many years and reporting on it and just, you know, having our own sidebars and our own posts and all of that. I really don't believe in this stuff. I don't, I, I just feel like these are, are, these are like semi false flag type events. It's a continued psyop, man. Just like when they had the brother that came all the way from Baltimore to go to New York City to go kill the two cops who were sitting in the parked car. And it, I mean, it's just this stuff just goes on and on. And really, to me, it's offensive to the point of of it. It's another form of of like the distraction of logical fallacy. Like we were talking about with the argument or whatever the guy was having with Max. Like you don't want to talk about the facts. We can't ever seem to stay focused on slavery. We can't ever seem to stay focused on the things we can change, the way we can affect the institutions, the way we can get legislation altered and start to change the existence of slave catchers, actual literal slave catchers and kidnappers enforcing the tax revenue generation policy of the local municipalities, your state, your city, your federal government, everybody is on board you are not generating revenue. If anything, that's what I get from this picture. He chose a, an ultimate example of someone who's not generating revenue for the state. And just like we talked about in Ferguson is America and that whole series years ago, we, we found the missing link. We found the key to the whole thing. This is a revenue generation generating operation. If you are not bringing tax revenue through business, through casinos, through, speedways and and new whatever tourist attractions uh ball teams if you're not some kind of way bringing big money to the table you're going to be preyed upon by the slave catchers and if the slave catchers can't get away with shooting you this week they got these kind of people that i i guess they could just trigger them or something i mean I, where does this person like this come from this guy really traveled hundreds of miles to come stab somebody with a sword he didn't pick nobody that would have kicked his ass they never find nobody that this would get it on with them or shoot them back or nothing. They go find these women and children and homeless people and create. So I just feel like it's an extended psyop. I mean, I'm not saying it the didn't whole really system, or whatever, though, yo, but- honey. Would you not agree though? But the whole media system. I mean, I don't know if you ever seen the movie V for Vendetta, right? And they yeah. just got one channel, right? And old boy had yeah. to hijack that one channel that totally controls all the programming that's right. seen on, on the television, what we call today right. the mainstream, okay? And, and and so those things can trigger certain. So look, he's probably going to Stormfront, all of these white supremacist religious websites and, and being fed all this false information about black people and depict dehumanizing, you know, photos and, and little memes and stuff. And so you get programmed but, with that. Then he's seeing all of these, like he said, biracial people like Max, you know what I'm saying? He's seeing too many Maxes in commercials now. And so that means that uh, black men... I feel like that's, Scotty, I I feel you. I feel like that is the message that the people that sent him want to communicate. I don't think that these people as individuals are anywhere sitting with enough balls to get up off their ass and really go do nothing to nobody. I don't believe it. I haven't seen it. Even here in Kansas City, when this dude pulled out his gun, he went to his car and got his gun and shot a couple of unarmed brown-skinned dudes in an in a argument at a little local family bar and grill, but it still wasn't a matter of him smacking nobody, starting no fight, risking getting his ass kicked. He went outside and went right. and got a gun and, and came and back I in agree. and shot. But that's so the I don't cowardice. feel like these people going to Stormfront and doing all this gun stockpiling and I'm tough, I'm Rambo, 
uh, don't tread on me, all this trash talking, I don't I don't think they tough. I don't believe that they really are going to bust a grape. I think they scared and paranoid, and I feel like this guy may have been sent. I, I don't see have. I mean, he, he was, was sent the by the programming. You know, I, I can't go there without more evidence and say that, you know, he came out the military. He's listed as a military analyst. That's what he did. Mm-hmm. He was only a spec four at 28 years old. He but was you only... saw this in in, Louis, in uh, Baton Rouge. You saw this with the brother that was from here. That these these shooters, these people are continually, they're all atta- attached in the same kind of yeah, way. Yeah, but the, pe- the brothers, no, nah, I don't think nobody sent them. Uh, from what I, I could know, gather, man, these people no, are, I mean, but you talk about Eddie Conway, and we talk about the Black Panther Party. Even if mm-hmm. we talk about the Deacons for Defense, those are all people with military training who said, "You right. know what? It's I'm going to now use my training to do whatever." But I can't say that you know this dude was giving some LSDC and then sat in the room where they played a tape recorder, giving him orders to go to New York and. I just can't go out there as a, as a journalist and, and, and say that. But what I can say is is that he does give indication that he was in his perception. See, that's what I was trying to get into is the mm-hmm. perception of the programming. So he perceived something that wasn't even true and what he believed, which was fed by the white supremacist propaganda that he was consuming, was that a lot of black men was producing babies with white women. And but the facts are is that the reverse is true. The number one person that's producing mixed race people or or, or babies with black women is white males. They the number one. If you look at the statistics, so why didn't he go tax some white males then? Why don't he just cut his uh, castrate himself then? He don't ever have to worry about that that happening because they are the predators. You know, people talk about apex predators, if you want to say that, in terms of that swirling or interracial marriage, which isn't even widespread when we're talking about marriage. But if you do look at television, they do display a whole lot of diversity, and I'm not going to say anything's wrong with that. What? These mixed-race people ain't supposed to get work modeling jobs and, and, and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? They not supposed to exist, you know? So, so, but that's yeah. what he gathered, and so he went and he cowardly stabbed this 66-year-old man in the back uh, because he black and because he, uh, uh, now this dude was there for three days, at least 48 hours, Johanna. Now, you ain't going to tell me you was in New York City for 48 hours and you ain't come across some quote-unquote thugs that you was looking for. Right. You know what I'm saying? I don't saying? give him enough credit. I, I, what you called him, like you said, is a coward for stabbing the man in the back. I, I don't give him enough credit to have got so pissed off from anything he saw to believe that his, you know, his American privilege and right. I just, I just don't give him credit that they got it. I would, I would give them. I would go sooner, as vague as it may seem, the evidence that's available to us at the moment as conspiratorial as it may sound, as crazy as people might think it is or whatever, I'd be far more willing to go with he got triggered some kind of a... Donald Trump some, triggered him too. Man, I Manchurian, think Donald Trump triggered shit before I'd ever say some po you know what, trash white dude got up and said, I'm going to go kill me. A, I just don't believe it. I, he ain't got the balls. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I would call him. I think he was triggered by Fox News just like Dylan Roof was triggered. Right, right, right. Fox and News then Donald Trump... Before, 
Because the guy, said, Max, that, uh, Max, let me say this and I'll let you, let you uh, go ahead and, and finish us out on this story. But I, if I recall correctly, because in my article, I published everything he told that reporter that I could get my hands on. And his ideal of, of making America great again, this is the terrorist, was 1950s. You know, I guess he saw the movie The Help. And that's what he, you know, how black people was depicted in the 1950s in the movies and what he heard about from his grandparents and, and parents and whatnot. So I think Donald Trump triggered him as well. Let me do, I'm make America great again. You know, let's take it back to the 1950s. Max. Um, man, I was just saying that I think Fox News triggered them. They've been triggering people a lot lately. I believe they triggered Dylan Roof just a week before this killing. Uh, they had one of the commentators on there talking about how somebody should kill Snoop Dogg for the video he put out about Trump, where he did a video in an alternate reality with a clown that pretended to shoot a clown Trump. And they called for his death for that. And see, these people can't go kill Snoop Dogg, but they can hate black people. And that's basically what the message implies. You should hate black people because this is how they act. This is what they're doing. They're calling for the death of your God, Donald Trump. So you should go out and kill one. And then that's what these people tend to do. These weak-minded, easily led uh, fools go out and commit these heinous acts of murder. And I believe that Fox News is a terrorist organization itself. It's a white, racist, nationalist station that spews propaganda that goes far beyond free speech. Free speech is saying something like, you know what? I hate you guys. That's free speech. Or uh, cursing somebody out in certain circumstances. But free speech isn't kill this man. That's not free speech. That's a command telling people to kill someone. And when they do it, and the station still continues to exist, then you're just empowering them. They can get away with anything. Pretty soon they're going to be calling for much more. And we can look at the facts of the news reports, like I said, the Post and the Daily News, whether or not this was some kind of psyop, whether it happened or not, whether it was a false flag or not. The facts is these newspapers did publish stories, and they did present them in a certain light, and they do that all the time. They just demonize us until it justifies our death by anybody. And this guy was even law enforcement. He was just some white guy who decided he hated black people and didn't listen to the Fox News and read white nationalist propaganda. He should have just joined the NYPD and he could have killed a black person, choked them out to death on the sidewalk or, or you know, uh, uh, catch him coming out the club uh, 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 during his uh, wedding, you know, uh, bachelor party and, and just gun him down. I don't know how many times they, they shot the brother. Uh, it's been so many victims or, or catch a black man reaching for his wallet and shoot him up a bunch of times. So, so you know, the, if he was smart, he should have joined the NYPD, you know, one of the oldest terrorist organizations in the country and, and definitely efficient at catching slaves. Johanna, Johanna, uh, did you want to take that next story about uh, uh, Darren Rainey? And we had, oh, you missed last week. George called in, George Malincott yeah, called in. I was in. trying to get on. I talked to him. I was sad I couldn't be on, man, but yeah. Yeah, this is a hell of a story, ain't it? 
Well, what was his? I didn't hear the recap. I mean, did he was he able to get into it? Because I see he released another thing today saying they called it all an accident. Yeah, that's the next story. Uh, let's go ahead and take our last break, but that's the next story. Um, okay. We can go ahead and get that posted. I also posted it in the chat for our uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Let me go ahead and throw that link. It's officials ruled inmates boiling death and accident, but documents show they omitted key details. I think that's a story from the Huffington Post. So while you get situated with that, we'll take our last break of the day, of the night, I should All right. say. Uh, I have the uh, information posted up on our Facebook page. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on blacktalkradionetwork.com. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking and all the things that go along with that. We'll be right back. Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Johanna is going to take us into our next story. It's in regards to the Darren Rating case, which we have been watching since day one, really, and reporting on it here at New Abolitionist Radio with witness testimony from people who were closely involved, like uh, Brother George Malincroft, who called in last week to give us the update. Johanna? Yeah, as I was saying before the break, I'm, I'm really disappointed. Uh, last week I was not able to get on the program as I am every week, but I was able to speak with George uh, through emails, you know, in these last few weeks as this information has been coming out, that the report was going to come out soon and that it was likely what, you know, was going to be found and all it is. So um, this is just a follow-up on that. Uh, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle says that the cause of death in Darren Rainey's death was schizophrenia and heart disease, despite burns on over 90% of his body after spending two hours in a shower, which was modified by prison guards as a torture chamber. So, I mean, I really don't know. Of course, we get into the story, but I, I just don't know what what person could hear just that and not know exactly what time it is, not know what the problem is, not see you know, where, where we, where we got an issue right now, two hours in a, in a shower of scalding hot water designed to torture people. 
and you said that his death was an accident and he died of heart disease um, and schizophrenia. Like Eric Garner died of, of extreme asthma and of heart heart issue, even though we see a 200-pound man draped off his neck, strangling him to death for four minutes. Like, this is what we're dealing with. So, you know, I'll get into the story because I've been gone for a while. I'm not quite ready to start ranting and going off yet. Uh, Darren Rainey died in June 2012 as an inmate of custody at the uh, Day Correctional Institution in South Florida. The story is one of the glaring reasons why we need protections against cruel and unusual punishment since other inmates claimed that he was burned like a lobster after spending two hours in a shower that guards had modified to punish prisoners. After issuing a mind-numbingly 101-page report, his death was ruled an accident because it takes 100 pages for somebody to explain an accident. Was ruled an accident by Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, which is an elected position, um, and guards were cleared of any wrongdoing. Of course, documents reviewed by Huffington Post indicate that the prosecutor's report does not contain the whole story. In fact, it would seem that information from the police, the prison, and emergency services were all somehow mysteriously excluded from the report, which paints a very different picture of the circumstances of his death. Uh, and here's a hint. They suggest that that uh, all that information suggests that he was murdered, of course. Numerous official photos taken of Rainey's body several hours after he died were also reviewed by Huffington Post. The images reveal extreme damage to his skin with wounds over his entire body and significant sections of his skin missing, exposing red and white tissue and in some areas what appear to be blood vessels. A medical examiner who has reviewed the Rainey autopsy and to whom Huffington Post described the information contained in the record says the cause of death, as stated, just doesn't make sense. So just to be clear, they said the state attorney, uh, Fernandez Rundle, uh, called Rainey's death an accident resulting from his schizophrenia, heart disease, and the confinement in the shower room. Yet one not need to be a medical expert to understand that everything described in the photos in the documents sounds like someone who was burned to death. Again, none of these details makes it into the prosecutor's report, though. A medic's record reviewed by Huffington Post from the night Rainey died indicates that he suffered burns despite the medical uh, county medical examiner's conclusion in the prosecutor's report that he did not. So the medical examiner said that he wasn't burned, which I don't understand how, but that's what the medical examiner said. And if people that follow the program know we reported on this, it was two years later. That was in 2014 when he finally released a report two years after it happened. So he sat on a report for two years and this is part of what made the state of Florida have to come up with some way to address all these deaths and custodies. And why they came up with the Florida Department of Corrections more inmate mortality website, which just is a running ticker showing all the deaths and giving you an updated status of, well, uh, still unknown, still investigated. Oh, yeah. Died of suicide, died of natural causes. So this is what we're dealing with down here. Um Lieutenant Alexander Lopez, a firefighter and paramedic with Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, reported that he examined Rainey's body about 50 minutes after he was found dead on the shower floor with second and third degree burns on approximately 30% of his body. Also, Lopez notes that CPR was administered to Rainey and that when he arrived, his body was cool to the touch. Rainey could have been dead up to 30 minutes before his body was even discovered, according to the prosecutor's report. The report notes the CPR... Rainey received and Lopez's view that Rainey's body was cool, but omits the skin burn information. So in the report, they said that his body was cool, like painting a picture that he wasn't burned to death, obviously. In the report, they said that he was given CPR, but 
but not including the part about his body being covered in his skin being burnt off his body. Instead, the report suggests that uh, Lopez believed that what he saw were burns and or skin slippage. So, I mean, it's just games that these people play in. And I don't know. They said that the the uh, body temperature that they took uh, through his through his ear was 104.9 degrees. A body temperature above 103 is considered dangerous. So this is after he was dead. His body was still 104 degrees. So, I, I, I mean, I don't know, fellas. Y'all, please comment, because I, I don't want to come back on the program my first day and just start going ballistic. That's crazy. We spoke about it to some detail last week with George, man, and we really all have come to an agreement that the district attorney is the criminal in this case right now. Uh, she is covering up for these guards, she's, uh, and she is performing criminal activities. Like, she should be the one facing charges right now, and everybody involved with this should be facing charges. The man had uh, third-degree burns all across the front of his chest there and across his back, the white meat was showing. I mean, we have heard all the reports, as you said, and Scotty knows. We reported on this now for several years about what's been going on directly from the witnesses. There's not a lot about these cases that we are not familiar with. And the conclusion is this. This is how they cover it all up. This is how they watch each other's backs. They're all on the same paycheck working for the same people. So this is what we're all... This is what we're all up against. Whether you're talking about a traffic ticket, a tag light out, whether you're a Sandra Bland and uh, you didn't signal correctly and now you're going to end up dead in custody a few days. I mean, it doesn't matter. You're in your way of engaging these people. When you engage these people, you're not just facing the one person in a blue suit with a badge and so-called authority and a gun he could pull and kill you and get away with it. You're not just facing that one person. You're facing a system which much of includes people that you vote for. These are elected officials. Like they finally like got rid the of the Khalif Browder with the Chicago. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Like the Khalif Browder series is showing us, as you just said, yeah. you're dealing with a system. Khalif Browder faced the system. All those people going through Rikers are facing an entire system. And oftentimes, it's just a system of greed and petty prestige and people looking to get pats on the head or titles that mean nothing at the end of the day. And they're just shuffling you through the system. And when they screw up, they cover up for each other. And they do it so often, they don't even pay attention anymore. It's like second nature to them. Like the judge on the Khalif Browder story, who saw him come before her six different times, and never said, hey, you know, this dude has been in jail for a long time, and he's actually innocent, proven guilty. Maybe we should be letting this ass go now. That never happened. Well, Max, uh, we I'm sorry to interrupt you, man, but your audio quality gets really bad at times, and, and I know the listener's not able to hear. And But we're also coming close to the end of the program. We got two segments to get through. Um, <laughs> I propose I propose uh, just doing one more story, and since your audio's messed up, I'll go ahead and Johanna did the last story. I'll go ahead and do this story um, about this. Uh, I guess this is a study or a project to track uh, how many people are dying in jails, as you just mentioned. You know the problem with Khalif Browder. Um, Johanna mentioned Sandra Bland. 
And she's mentioned in this article as well that is coming to you from the Huffington Post. And it says, um, this is, we wanted to find troubled jail, so we counted the bodies. They actually got a picture of a whole lot of bodies. Um, In any given year, the vast majority of the thousands of jails in the United States do not report a single death. Let me restate that very first sentence uh, from this article, which was written by Ryan J. Riley and Dana uh, Lee Belson on um, actually about a year, a year and a couple of months ago. So it says in any given year, the vast majority of the thousands of jails in the United States do not report a single death. Let me say that again in case that did not get through to you, because there are hundreds of jails out there and they do not. Some of them, probably the majority of them, do not report a single death. That makes sense. Jails are supposed to be controlled environments. You can't get in a car accident behind bars. You shouldn't be able to overdose on drugs or attempt suicide without a staff member noticing. If you have health problems, jails should provide medical care, which they don't. I heard somebody the other day say that prisoners get better medical care than poor people and black people out here on the street. I'm like, I don't know what prison news you've been reading. Um, But anyway, it says, but each year about 1,000 Americans die in jail anyway. Many die without the public knowing why or whether their deaths could have been prevented. Although the federal government collects data on jail deaths, it only publishes that data years later in aggregate, making it impossible to identify facilities that have particularly high death rates. Now, again, this isn't prisons. This is just the jails where you're supposed to be innocent till proven guilty. But, of course, we know some people are sentenced to, like, maybe a year in jail or two years in jail. So they do house bodies uh, in jail like they do in prisons. It's a national scandal that we have so little information about people who die in state custody, said David uh, Fathy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. I don't know of any other developed country where it's really impossible to say how many people died in jails and prisons in a given year. I mean, it's the same thing with how many uh, people are being killed by slave catchers. The, you know, alternative media, uh, ordinary citizens like the guys who set up killedbypolice.net, that database, that spreadsheet. You know, because the federal government doesn't require this. Now, we'll see that um, those who are operating what they call sanctuary cities are having their federal funding threatened and taken away, representing billions of dollars in in federal uh, pork. And and so, you know, uh, but they don't require them in order to get these uh, uh, grants to not be killing people in the jail or shooting people in the street unnecessarily. So it goes on to identify 15 jails that had death rates more than double the last available national average, which is 135 deaths a year per 100,000 inmates. Here are the top 10 in alphabetical order. Charles County Detention Center in La Plata, Maryland. Delaware County Jail, Delaware, Ohio. 
Floyd County Jail in Rome, Georgia, Hampton Roads Regional Jail in Portsmouth, Virginia, Imperial County Jail, El Centro, California, California, Pinnell County Jail, Florence, Arizona, Richmond City Jail, Richmond, Virginia. Oh, you just brought up Tanya Free and Friends show earlier today. Man, I wonder if they know this, uh, uh, that people dying in their jails at twice the national average. Roanoke City uh, Jail, Roanoke, Virginia. Virginia on this list a whole lot, y'all, more than any other uh, state. Uh, St. Louis County Justice Center, Clayton, Missouri. And uh, rounding out, I guess this is, that's not 15, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And rounding out, in the top 10, coming in at the bottom, Warren County Regional Jail, Boiling Green, Kentucky. So it says that not every death that occurs in custody is someone's fault. Circumstances like the mental health screening or medical care an inmate did or didn't receive are more important than overall numbers. But the circumstances of an inmate's death can be difficult to discern from the publicly released data. Uh, going back to the story that Johanna just got through talking about, this state attorney in Florida covering up and leaving out evidence and, and saying that nurses' testimony is unreliable, saying that other prisoners are unreliable who, who finally, you know, who stood up to uh, tell uh, what they saw, the crime that they witnessed, and it just defies all logic as well. When you got inmates cleaning up Mr. Rainey's skin off the bottom of the shower stall that you say in your report was specifically set up to torture or to punish is the word that they use, punish prisoners. But you boil this man to death and he dies. And now you're saying that, oh, he didn't really die that way. He died of... um, I forgot what what crazy uh, determination a medical examiner came up with, which they also are in on the cover-up. So anyway, that is that story about the, it looks like the ACLU tracking for the past couple of years, or at least since 2016, uh, started tracking deaths in jails. So um, I believe that story is posted for you now. We uh, do want to move to our final segments uh, Max, again, your your audio. Uh, if you want to introduce the seg- segments and get me and Johanna. Johanna, if you'll take the ex-Black uh, Panther leader, plans community service after releasing officers killing. That's our writer of the Underground Railroad or 21st Century Underground Railroad. And I have uh, the clip that we'll play for, uh, courtesy of history.com where we're profiling the entire abolitionist movement of pre-1865 with the 13th Amendment being, what do they call it, the point of demarcation and and what have you. So we have pre-1865 slavery. We live right now in post-1865 slavery with, again, uh, the 13th Amendment being that point in history that we we are uh, pivoting. Yeah, go ahead, Max. Can you hear me now? Uh, Halfway deep, Lisa? Yes, a lot better. All right, I'm sorry about that. I'm in, like I said, I'm in the middle of nowhere. When you hear them stories about you live up in the boondocks, way up there, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Just letting you know. But uh, in order to save time, I have provided a couple links for our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. 
the most important one is a 10-part series from the Real News Network on uh, where Eddie Conway tells his story in his own words of what he went through. It is an epic story, definitely worthy of your time. I sat and watched the entire 10 parts, one after the other, because it just was, for me, it was just that important and that epic. So make sure you check it out. As I mentioned before, Eddie Conway has been involved in change and revolution in the movement since he was a teenager. There's not much that he has not seen or had happened to him along the way, all the way up to uh, attempted, uh, attempts on his life, and as I said, organizing prison unions inside the prisons while he was in there, and also being a uh, veteran for his country. He was next, even at one next. point. Your audio is tripping out. again, bro. And we only have a few minutes, so if you can transition us. I, I hate to cut you off, man, but, I mean, the audio is what it okay. is. Johanna. Uh, okay. Uh, well, check us out on New Abolitionist Radio for the Eddie Conway story. Uh, that is our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Salute. Welcome to Freedom, brother. Yeah, we didn't really, I didn't even know that's what you were talking about. Johanna, can you hit that, bust that out for us real quick, the... Uh, profile for the writer for uh, for the writer for Conway it, or? yeah Conway sure uh, I mean as we've been talking about him he was in uh, in prison for 44 years um, I don't know if I have the same link that you all are talking about in specific but I mean there's plenty of information or whatever I had a, a truth dig article where Amy Goodman interviewed him when he first got out in 2014 at any rate 44 years behind bars, convicted of an April 1970 killing of a Baltimore police officer. You good? Go? Yeah, you're good. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, he said he always maintained his innocence at the time of his arrest and trial. He was a prominent member of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, but he had a, uh, he was one of the principal focus of COINTELPRO, the FBI's illegal counterintelligence program, the FBI under uh, J. Edgar Hoover, of course, surveilled, infiltrated, and destroyed the Black Panther chapters, you know, from coast to coast. Um, he said that the prosecution of him was uh, hinged on the testimony of a, of a single police officer and a jailhouse informant who claimed Conway described the crime while they were sharing a cell. Um, so obviously that was all a sham and, and put him away. But uh, his defense attorneys worked for more than 20 years. Uh, they explained that his trial took place in January 71, the break-in at the office of Ben's a creative technology, which led to disclosures concerning uh, COINTELPRO did not occur until April 71. So when he went to trial at a time when COINTELPRO was still active and the jury did not even know that there was such a campaign. So, I mean, of course, that's a huge factor when you got the federal government, you know, working to to criminalize and destroy people. And then they sit up here trying to face a trial. Like we said, these people right now, you know, when you get there all the way up to the prosecutor, the state's attorney, these are all people working against you, you know, if you ever get caught up in the system. So at this time, this man had the federal government literally against him as he's fighting as one individual for his freedom. It took him 44 years to get free. So I know we pressed for time. Uh, again, he was he was released uh, in uh, 2014. Um, and Conway, after 44 years behind bars, you would think he never would want to set foot in prison again. But that's not him for his future. He says he's continuing to do work. Uh, with the friend of a friend organization and continues to work to save lives. So we just want to give a shout out, as uh, Max was saying earlier, to Brother uh, Eddie uh, Marshall Conway. Uh, welcome home, Brother, our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Salute. Salute welcome to that home. brother. Salute. Salute. Like we said, uh, that was him interviewing Crystal Roundtree of I Am We. 
uh, working for the Real News. Shortly after he got out of prison, he began his work uh, with the Baltimore uh, base Real News, which is a network is uh, run and managed by Paul J. It's a nonprofit media organization, just like the Black Talk Media Project. Um, but another e- interesting piece of history is uh, the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party was started by by uh, police, undercover agents, F- FBI agents, black people that working for the man. <laughs> Uh, started that chapter, man, then recruited people and set them up to do stuff. And I'm not saying that's what happened with Eddie or anything, but that's a fact of history that the Baltimore chapter of of the Black Panther Party in Baltimore was started by the FBI. All right. Um, as Johannes stated, we are pressed for time. So our abolitionist in profile is the pre-1865 abolitionist movement, the entire movement. I uh, connected, um, posted the link where you can see the uh, wider article. It's pretty long. Um, it's not real, real long. It's not like a book or anything, but it's long in terms of an article giving you a lot, a lot of information on the abolitionist movement, uh, 1865. But the goal of the abolitionist movement, and we're talking about here in the United States, was the immediate emancipation of all slaves and the end of racial discrimination and segregation. So, again, this is where people want to talk about intersectionality. I say that racism, uh, uh, that that road, the road to racism, uh, began on Slavery Boulevard. So let me just put it like that. So the abolitionist movement has always addressed racial discrimination and and segregation. And and what they mean by segregation is where the humiliation and you could just treat a black person any kind of way. You know, you could hang them from trees and not even be charged with terrorism or murder or 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 anything. So the. Pre-1865 abolitionist movement advocated for an immediate emancipation, distinguished abolitionists from more moderate anti-slavery advocates who argued for gradual emancipation and from free soil activists who sought to restrict slavery to existing areas and prevent it spread further west. So, I mean, you had a bunch of different people with different views and um, you know, at the time, so I see the new abolitionist movement the same way as it doesn't seem everybody's not on the same page, but they are working towards this or that. Um, so anyway, it goes on to say radical abolitionism was partly fueled by the religious fervor of the Second Great Awakening, which prompted many people to advocate for emancipation on religious grounds. And so a lot of key uh, number, like Denmark V.C. was a preacher, uh, Nat Turner was a preacher. And so I I hear people, the argument that Christianity, uh, the white man's religion, would brainwash certain people, but it also had a different effect on other people where what they got from it was like, hey, this is just confirming what these people doing to me is wrong and what have you. And you would have a Denmark VC, uh, Guller Jack, I think he practiced, he held on to his African tradition because I think he was like a voodoo priest or something like that. Guller Jack who worked with Den- Denmark VC uh, in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Mother Emmanuel. Um, so anyway, Here's what I like. Abolitionist ideals became increasingly prominent in northern churches and politics 
beginning in the 1830s, which contributed to the regional animosity between North and South leading up to the Civil War. So they agitated for into slavery to the point that people picked up arms. Okay, people were willing to die. People were willing to fight. People were willing to kill to emancipate slaves and to abolish slavery on this continent. And and many of them were, were tricked and bamboozled. A uh, few of them were not, uh, like Frederick Douglass was not. And they said that thir- they tricking us with that 13th Amendment, man. They let them Confederates come in after we got through whooping them and let them help draft the 13th Amendment. How you going to do that? These reps, you know, so anyway... Um, but uh, never underestimate the power of media and agitation. And I would say religion. All right, so uh, Max, did you have any final comments? I don't have any final comments. Uh, We'll be shutting down the conference line and restarting it so we can get ready for mind, body, and spirit. I'll just lead off. My final comments are... um, We need all the new abolitionists uh, that we can get that are able, and if you're not able, find a way to support the upcoming Millions for Prisoners' Human Rights March in Washington, D.C., August the 19th, 2017. I believe they'll be meeting on the Washington Mall between hours of 12 uh, of noon uh, up until 5 p.m., if I'm not mistaken. So we, uh, what a better time to be alive and what a better time than now to fight for the uh, total abolition of slavery. Johanna? Man, I just want to say peace to the abolitionists. Uh, we got some things going on here locally that um, I, I don't understand how this city, Kansas City, that I live in is still quiet. And uh, it's just a shame to see. I know I had reported on the program uh, several weeks back and shared with you guys personally also some of the story of the black police chief here. Daryl Forte had, had expressed that he was, you know, was tired of the racism and named the names and was saying what he was going to be doing. And he just was ready to, you know, go at, go at all costs to end what's going on and uh, was receiving death threats in his home, had his home, had his vehicle vandalized, said he had trained his wife and his daughter in, in uh, firearms training. All of this came out just in February and now this month he just announced he's going to retire uh in May and uh they just found uh reminded him that he's got about 4000 uh hours of comp time built up over his 30 year career so he's going to retire in May with about $500,000 uh, to cash out from the city so this is what we dealing with people this is what we this is what we got peace to the abolitionists death to the oppressors and their proxies um Make sure you follow me at Max Parthas on Facebook. I'm always, I always have something to say and something important to share, and I use Facebook for a lot of that information. With that being said, just keep these things in mind. Revolution is a process. The process may come to a conclusion beginning August 1950, short for that prisoners march on Washington, D.C. And remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally miss some peace. Peace. 
freestyle. Free like birds and trees, free like open seas, free like the change of seasons. And that is the reason we need to stop killing American soldiers without a reason. Freestyle, fighting a war for money control and America's own treason. Disloyal to our own, but we go to other nations and we make their houses our homes. What about our homes? What about our houses? In this war that ain't about you, ain't about me, and damn sure ain't about America's civil liberties. Because we got Americans dying behind gunfights, crooked cops, babies crying, presidents lying, black men and statistic aids, and this shit is quite twisted. The streets sweet, babies missing, and mamas wishing they daddies was there, and it makes me want to holler because it seems like we no longer care. Freestyle, free life, freeing the street soldiers from this war in progress because it's on the street too, and it too is about greed and power. We need the government to wake up and take a true shower. We need us to get us free because they don't know what's best. Probably ain't never seen seven-year-old little boys wearing bulletproof vests to protect their chest because ghetto children run free, and they run free through 